Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and before we get started, I want to just uh, give a quick mention that our new website is up and running, and I'd love for you to check it out so you can uh, be in the loop and who's coming on the show and uh, check out some some great new content. Our website address is womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. So this afternoon, I'm thrilled to have a woman in the studio with me who is a local lady, although she does quite a bit of traveling. And her name is Deborah Henry. Deborah is an attorney, and she is an internationally recognized expert, consultant, public speaker um, on the topic of new legal models, women and work-life balance, and the future of the legal profession. Did I get all that right? Yeah. Absolutely. So delighted to be here, Thank Sue. you so Thank much. You. I really appreciate your taking some time to come in and be on the show. Uh, absolutely. And we have a lot to talk about. Um, just so the listeners have a sense of you, um, you founded three companies and you've written two books, all of which I want to talk about. But as we always do on Women to Watch, I want to talk about you and your background and, and get a better sense of where you came from, where you grew up and all that good stuff. So um, talk for a few minutes about your years growing up in Scarsdale, New York. Sure. Um, so again, thank you so much. And Sue, I'm such a fan of you and your work. So it's just thank a pleasure you. to be collaborating with you. Thank you. Um, so growing up in New York, I was uh, grew up in the New York suburbs and um, the youngest of three. And I have an older sister and an older brother. And really the first advocate for women that I ever knew was my father. Um, my mother really showed me by example the work that women can do. She went back to work after being a stay-at-home mom for nine years. And so I really think I modeled a lot of my work after my mother. But growing up in Scarsdale, I played a lot of sports. My father is an athlete. And um, I think that's really actually where I learned a lot of the skills that I've used today as a, as a professional woman. But um, my father really was that first advocate for women that I ever knew. And he really taught me as a girl that I could do anything that the boys could do. And I really believe that. And um, having people at a young age believe in you like my parents did, I think, was just an enormous influence in me in terms of having me as an adult really pursue my dreams. Yeah, and especially um, a father. You know, as a you, getting support from a mom is different than getting support from your dad. And I think, um, and I'd love to talk about that later, kind of the role that men play in trying to support and really back women in leadership. Um, so tell me some of the things you were involved in in high school. Sure. I mean, more than anything, I was involved in sports. I played field hockey and lacrosse, um, and I actually ended up playing in college for a period of time as well. So 
I really um, started running as a four-year-old with my father and did some mini marathons and then later marathons in life. So athletics was always really my primary. And um, and then otherwise, I played the violin and I was um, in the orchestra through high school. And then I did not continue with it in college. But those were really the two principal things that mm-hmm. I focused on as a kid. Um, and, uh, and then was just really social and really enjoyed the social environment and, um, dated and had girlfriends and all that sort of stuff, which is really important to me. Yes. Yeah. Um, your high school, was it in, uh, a public school, a private all girls? It's a, it's a public, um, co-ed school and, um, very competitive environment actually, but one where I really, um, I really loved and valued and it was a community that um actually just in terms of girls what was amazing is really growing up there in the 70s um they had an incredible sports program for girls and starting in third grade I started competing athletically and I think as I said it it really was an enormous influence on me in my career because I think through athletics girls really learn and of course boys do as well how to compete how to play on a team how to lead, um, and really just how to um, tough it out in a lot of respects. And so I think all of that, the persistence and grit that you really develop as Mm -hmm. an athlete is so transferable as, um, you know, in the professional world. Yeah. And and discipline. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me when you decided uh, that you were going to study psychology. You went to Yale and you got a degree in psychology. And was that something, I mean, obviously your mom was a psychologist. She's still practicing? Yes, she is actually. So that was a lot of influence on me that my mother um, was a psychologist and went back and got her PhD at night starting when I was two. But when I was in college, actually, I took this amazing class um, in my junior year called Psych and Law. And I thought it was really, really interesting. The professor was phenomenal. And I approached him after the class and said, I don't know if I want to go into psychology because I, I just I, I didn't want to write a statistical thesis. And I, for a number of reasons, I wasn't sure I wanted to be a psychologist. But I said, I'm actually really interested in the psychological motivations and conflicts of a criminal defense attorney. And it really is looking at um, the sort of the acute issues that face lawyers when they represent somebody who's allegedly done something that, you know, is is potentially reprehensible. And so I thought that was the most acute ethical issue that I could address. And so my senior year, I interned for a criminal defense attorney, uh, excuse me, a criminal defense firm in, um, in New Haven for the year and really studied what it is that criminal defense attorneys do when, you know, in terms of defense mechanisms and otherwise in representing clients who, um, you know, have done questionable things. And that really fueled my interest in law and following graduation from college, I ended up spending two years actually at the Manhattan DA's office before going to law school. Oh, you did. Wow. What a yeah. great experience. It was really fun. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's always interesting to me when I talk to women and they have and quite a number, you know, that are in the corporate, you know, arena, but um, started out in psychology. My feeling is everyone can do well with a psychology degree, right? right? right. To, doesn't matter what industry you go into or what profession. I think that psychology is just great background knowledge for anything. Absolutely. And, and makes you feel slightly more confident when you give your girlfriend's advice about all the psychobabble <laughs> that you do and exactly. think, well, there's some basis of something in this understanding. <laughs> exactly. Um, so tell me those years then that you were um, after Yale and you were working um, those two years prior to, to uh, law school, 
what's what were some of the challenges for you in those years? Um, it was actually a really great time because I, I graduated and had two years of sort of uh, just working and kind of being a regular person before focusing on my career. And the Manhattan DA's office was actually a really interesting place to work rather than paralegal at a large law firm, which a lot of people do. I was actually working in the Rackets Bureau, which is dealing with organized crime for two years before going to law school. So it was really exciting. And the Manhattan DA's office at the time had a way to um, get educated about New York. And you got to go on ride-alongs in police cars and go to ballistics labs wow. and watch how to trace a bullet and and go and watch an autopsy. I mean, crazy stuff. And, CSI um, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that was really fun. And so, you know, in terms of challenges, actually, it was a, it was a pretty special time that kind of uh, you know, that sort of period between it really in transition. And I, I lived in New York where I had grown up in the suburbs. So I knew a lot of people and it was social and fun. And it was, you know, then it was kind of zeroing in more when I got to law school that I needed to focus and really figure out what I wanted to do. But that two year window was, was really a special one. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. Exciting for a young girl. Absolutely. Yeah. So then um, I guess you, when you said you needed to decide what um, what you wanted to do, what area of law you wanted to go in. Right. And what area did you practice so or study, I, I should say? I ultimately went into litigation and I sort of, I think, had an image of like, that's what a lawyer does is they go to court. And I really didn't have any sense of really what that was. And following law school, I clerked um, for a federal judge for two years, which was really interesting. And the judge I clerked for was wonderful. So that was very special. But subsequent to that, I practiced litigation at two firms. And while the two firms I joined were really, you know, decent, nice firms with really great colleagues and good people, the nature of the work itself was so not in sync with what anything um, that I was interested in or inspired by. And so that was a hard time because I just... I just really wasn't engaged in the work, and I always felt this is something I want to be passionate about where I spend my time during the workday, and mm -hmm. it just clearly wasn't. Yeah. Um, I, I want to get into this topic of work-life balance, which sometimes I'm even hesitant to say it because I don't know that really there is, you know, a balance in, in life today, especially with the, the busy schedules we all have and family life and all of that. But I know that it's something you focus on and you're extremely, I would say you're an expert in it because you've studied and um, you have three boys um, and you're married and you, um, you know, the, the titles that I shared at the beginning of the show, you do public speaking, you do writing, you do consulting, um, it's a lot on your plate. So, mm -hmm. of course, I want to know what is your philosophy on work-life balance, but specifically your own personal. How do you manage the day-to-day -day without kind of, you know, losing control? Right. Yeah. So, for starters, I definitely lose control. And, okay. <laughs> I, and I feel like there are days where I just, you know, I feel like I'm about to implode. I mean, it's just, it's really hard. And mm -hmm. so... I don't think you can ever figure it out. I think that it's something we all regularly struggle with and try to improve upon. I think with me, um, what I've tried to do in just managing my own life as well as advising other people is to try to really distill what it is that's important to you when you think about different balance in your life between work and, and your home life. And I think it sort of goes into four buckets. Um, one is about predictability and control. The second is around flexibility. 
the third is about working in some reduced hours capacity, and the fourth is around proximity, meaning where you work and sort of what your work near, that kind of thing. And you need to know which of those four areas, or maybe it's all of them, really are important to you. And for me, What's really important is predictability and flexibility. And so while I work a lot of hours and I travel and I have a really demanding career, I have total flexibility in the way in which I work and what I say yes to and what I say no to. And that's being uh, self-employed, obviously. Um, But I also have predictability. And that, to me, was a really big source of dissatisfaction for me and other law firm lawyers I know who I counsel is that often the nature of the practice is such that you don't have predictability and that causes a lot of dissatisfaction in people, including me. So for me, the way I manage it is by gaining more control and flexibility. Um, and I, you know, I mentioned proximity for some people, for example, travel would be, you know, a deal breaker and they wouldn't want to do that. Whereas with me, I like the travel component as long as it's, you know, limited and it's discreet. Um, it's a fun piece for me to be able to, to jaunt to a city for a day or a night and then come back and return to my life. So, um, but it, I, I really want to emphasize that it's not as if you can, you know, figure it out. I think that it is something that you constantly need to work with. Mm-hmm. And given the fact that demands at work and at home are constantly changing, you need to constantly tinker and work with this formula so that it is manageable enough or that on the daily basis, you are prioritizing enough of what you want to be prioritizing. Mm-hmm. You know, when you use the word predictability, I, I, I think, my goodness, we nothing seems to be predictable. We can plan our day and, or, you know, plan our schedules, but, you know, you wake up and something comes um, at you that you didn't, you know, you weren't planning for. So, you know, then you have to be flexible and able to, um, you know, change your priorities for that day. Right. I think you have to have a sense of humor. I think, um, and I think um, ideally you're not walking such a close tightrope. I remember when my kids were really young and I had, babysitter, you know, coverage and that kind of thing. If you can afford to have extra backup or have friends and family around who can come in and pitch in if there's the inevitable snow day or the inevitable issue with your child being sick, that can really make a difference just in taking off the daily stress that Mm -hmm. is just pervasive when you are, particularly when you're a working parent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that you speak about often is is just the legal profession in general and some of the changes that are needed. Um, it's changed and, you know, there's things that uh, I just think could be better. What would you say is, is the number one critical change that you feel is uh, needed for both men and women in the legal profession? It's funny. So my second book that I've co-authored just came out in January and um, and the title is is Finding Bliss, Innovative Legal Models for Happy Clients and Happy Lawyers. And actually, if, if you know, sort of the knee jerk reaction for me to respond is I think one of the things that really has to change in the legal profession is people have to get happier. 
And I know that sounds really, you know, superficial or maybe mundane, but it's really not. And actually, in our book, one of the contributing um, writers who does an introduction to one of our chapters is an expert who I know on happiness, this woman, Gretchen Rubin, who's the New York Times bestselling author on happiness. And in the introduction, she writes to our concluding chapter of the book, she says, you know, people think happiness is a luxury. And in fact, it's not. The research supports that the more happy and engaged individuals are, employees, lawyers, whomever, the more profitable they are, the more productive they are, the more likely they are to be retained by their employers, and the more happy they are simply in terms of their work as well as their home life. And so I think when I think one of the things that really has to change in law is you have to get lawyers to become much more happy in their work and in turn more engaged and, and you know, and profitable, productive, and, and happy people. Yeah. Less serious, maybe? Yeah. And I just think, um, you know, remembering why they went into the field in the first place mm-hmm. and yeah. feeling satisfaction in the help that they're providing. Mm-hmm. And um, if they're not feeling satisfaction or inspiration in the work that they're doing, perhaps go and do something different. Yeah. What, what would you say, what, what is some advice from you on how to kind of keep that positive attitude? Because I find often, you, you know, if if you do have the flexibility and the control over your life and your actions and what you can do, and you do choose to, to be positive and look at the positive, but then something will happen in the day, you know, to some, to other people um, that kind of brings you down. You know, it's kind of that negativity that's happening over there, but you can't ignore it. Right. Yeah. What, in other words, your I'm, self-talk, I guess. Yeah. What would I mean, be? I think actually one of the best things you can be doing is to be good. And what I mean by that is, the more marketable you are, the harder you work, the better you are the, as a as a talented lawyer, let's say, or a talented professional, the more marketable you are, the more you're able to leave. So sometimes you're in a toxic work environment and there's nothing you can do about mm-hmm. that awful boss. And for as long as you work for him or her, it's going to be awful. And so for you to be really talented and marketable and effective at networking, to be able to create other opportunities for yourself, Mm -hmm. that is going to be perhaps the way that you get inspired again. And so it it really is about um, being your own entrepreneur, whether you're employed by somebody else or not, but being able to maximize the opportunities that present because you're so good and because you work hard and you're responsive and accessible and and all the things that are expected of somebody who's a talented professional. Yeah. Um, that kind of leads me to my next question, because I wanted to know your take on, and you're out in the world a lot. Um, you see and meet a lot of people, um, with women from different backgrounds and, you know, in the audiences um, where you speak. And women can get stuck in a place that's not um, healthy. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering what you think is one of the main contributors to women's hesitation to make a change or right. speak up or lean in. Right. So I think um, it's interesting. I My area of focus initially was around work-life balance, as you said, and that was nearly 20 years ago. And once I started focusing on work-life issues, it was principally women initially I was working with, and I realized, okay, well, work-life is a significant challenge among women, but in my mind, there's really four other key areas where women stall. Um, one is around leadership and raising their hand for leadership opportunities and assuming those responsibilities. 
The second is around effective self-promotion, that you want to be able to demonstrate your value, but you don't want to be that obnoxious person in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, Three is around networking and being effective at making an ask, let's say, when you need to network with somebody and and want to have an opportunity present as a result of that networking. Um, And the fourth is about sponsorship, about developing strategic alliances. So I look at challenges with women professionally and I really see them being in these five areas the four I just mentioned plus work life and navigating flexibility issues and so apropos of your question I think some of the areas where women really get stuck is a risk aversion that they are afraid to put themselves out there and it may be afraid to raise their hand for leadership or when they're networking it may be afraid to sort of make that final ask and not just connect with somebody but actually say oh you know Sue not only I'd love for you to be able to help me or could you make that introduction for me so women sort of stop short of those kinds of Mm -hmm. things Um, and so in terms of sponsors too it's about you know seeking somebody out who may be helpful alliance to you and offering something to them and so where I see women really stalling is that they hesitate and they are more risk averse they're less inclined to ask of course I'm making generalizations here but the Mm -hmm. research supports that there's more of a reticence with women Um, and part of it is social norms part of it is um, it's not often as socially acceptable for women to admit that they're ambitious or even to be ambitious Mm -hmm. really and to pursue things with vigor and so you have a natural hesitation of many women, and then it's compounded by the fact that it's not as socially acceptable for women, you know, and the sort of different terminology that's used for women who are, let's say, aggressive, and whereas those kinds of skills would be complimented in a man that he's a go-getter, well, it's a sort of derogatory thing with women. So there are a lot of issues at play that impede women from really going for it, which is really a challenge, and I think a lot of what we're trying to do people like the two of us and other advocates for women are really trying to empower women to be inspired and to speak up and to pursue things Mm -hmm. and to see the reward that ensues as a result of putting yourself out there yeah and and to be proud one Mm -hmm. of the things i try to really you know i think often women um, are accomplishing great things but when you you mentioned about you know not you know putting your hand up and saying look what i've done Mm -hmm. you know we really should learn more to be proud of the work that we have done and not hesitate to to kind of point it out so that it leads to those other opportunities. Right. And it's a fine it, line. I mean, it's, yeah, you know, it's one of it, those things that you don't, you've seen those really obnoxious self-promoters and you don't yes. want to be those people. Right. On the other hand, if you're not effective at demonstrating your value and showing your value, you won't get the same opportunities because mm-hmm. you're being judged on the fact that you can't convey what you could really bring to the table. So it's a skill that needs to be honed, but mm-hmm. it's one that you need to be careful with because there is judgment if you sort of cross the line. Can you actually give an example for the listeners of some language to use? For right. instance, you know, um, if a woman is, is has an opportunity, she's with someone that could could actually be a potential, um, you know, colleague in a, in a good way. Just the, the right language to say, you know, by the way, I wanted to mention a few things that, that I've done of late that may be of interest to you. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. When you look at effective self-promotion, there's a number of things that can be done and, and particularly resonate with women. Um, one is understanding that actually 
by self-promoting, you may be able to help other people. Women are often good at that and willing to take that sort of role. So rather than say, hey, I've done this and that and I'm really great at it, to be able to say, it looks like you have a certain kind of need and I've actually done that kind of work and by me... Um, you know, and, and I've done it in the, in these various scenarios. And so I'd really love to be able to be helpful to you in achieving that same goal because I've done it for three other clients in the following settings. Mm -hmm. So being able to frame it as a way to help somebody because you had this prior experience as opposed to just, I'm so great, look what I've done, you know, that kind of thing without making the connection for the other person about what the deliverable, excuse me, the deliverable would be for them. Mm -hmm. um, it can be much more effective when you make that connection. Other things that really work well in terms of self-promotion, um, one is um, being self-effacing. And if you can, if you have a sense of humor and you can capitalize on that, um, it can be a really nice way to sort of, you know, on the one hand, sort of be self-effacing, but on the other hand, um, self-promote. You attended recently a, an interview I conducted of, um, of Claire Shipman, who's a very prominent um, author and Good Morning America anchor. And she talked about women and confidence. That was my interview of her. And during the interview, and I imagine you remember this, she said to the audience, well, let me um, share a story that um, you all can relate to. And she then recounts this story of her sending an email to Diane Sawyer. And so I interjected in the interview and said, actually, Claire, I don't think that's something we could all really relate to. <laughs> well, that was a moment where I actually was self-effacing here and saying, oh, you know, we're, you know, we're these small people. We can't imagine emailing uh, Diane Sawyer. On the other hand, I was there on stage. So it was a way for me to be relatable to the audience and connect with the audience. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I was being self-effacing, but it was also a promotional moment because there I am on stage with her. So balancing that is really interesting and can be effective means of self-promotion. And one other thing I'll say that also can really help people is if you're a good storyteller, you can really be an effective self-promoter. And the way you can do that is you can capture people in your story and they get captivated in your storytelling and they don't realize that you're actually self-promoting at the same time. I can give you an example. I don't know if you want to move on, but there there are ways to do that really effectively. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it. it I think that it comes very natural to some people. Mm -hmm. um, you know that self-effacing and, and just kind of uh, connecting with the person who's in front of you. Um, and for other people, it doesn't. But you're saying it can be learned. It absolutely can be yeah. learned, and it's something that people really need to focus on because yeah. if they want to be effective, they need to be able to demonstrate their value. And at a minimum, take credit where credit is due. Right. I want to know where your ambition and drive comes from. Um, I often feel that, you know, people that are out, you know, really living life to the fullest, doing mm -hmm. a lot of things, um, sometimes that ambition and drive comes from a place of uh, something in the past and, and they're really trying to kind of prove themselves to others or to themselves. Other times it comes from a very authentic place of it's so fulfilling and exciting to be involved in life fully. Um, where does your drive and ambition come from? It's interesting. I think it's um, really in my DNA. Um, and there's a story that my family will often tell about me as a four-year-old and I was at a swim club in a race uh, and where they had 
all of the um, kids were in bathing suits and there were peanuts all on the floor of the pool on the stairs. And you had to collect as many peanuts in a certain amount of time on the pool stairs before they called time. And then the one who had the kid who had the most peanuts won. And I remember all these kids around me grabbing peanuts in their hands, but there was only so many peanuts you could hold as a four-year-old in your hands. So I was wearing one of those stretchy Danskin bathing suits that we always used to wear. And my parents recount how I started stuffing the bathing the, the peanuts down my bathing suit. And sure enough, they called time and all the kids had, you know, whatever, 15 to 20 peanuts. And then I released all these peanuts from my Danskin bathing suit. And I had like hundreds. And my parents were like, she's somebody who has drive. I mean, she's like, well, they're like, who is this kid? Of nothing you know? else. Right. And I, so I think about the peanut race and I'm like, that's kind of who I am. Like I was like, let me try to figure out some way to do this different. And it's a little bit, I mean, talk about risk averse. I mean, this is not risk averse. This is like putting yourself out there and be like, God, I hope this is okay. Yeah. I love that story for so many reasons, but it's funny how a story from, from when you're little stays with you forever. It's really meaningful. It absolutely is. And it speaks to who you are, you know, at the core. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, That's terrific. We're going to take a quick break and we will be back with Deborah Henry. Attorney and internationally recognized expert consultant and public speaker. We'll be right back. Are you looking for something special to wear to an event, on a date, or out with the girls? Nevada is a Philadelphia-based luxury label designed for the effortlessly chic global nomad. Our ready-to-wear and custom pieces, which include bridal wear by the way, are inspired by artistry and travel. The line is intriguing and exotic. After all, fashion should create a sense of escape. So go ahead, escape with Nevada, and make a timeless impression. Please visit us online at nevadacouture.com. Drexel University's LeBeau College of Business is more than a place to earn a degree. It's the epicenter of critical new ideas, an entrepreneurial spirit, and a powerful network of over 2,500 corporate partners. From March 2nd through the 6th, get an inside look at what it's like to be part of the LeBeau online community with a free digital test drive. Participants will be able to experience online learning, explore student support services, and interact with Drexel faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Drexel's bachelor's and master's business programs rank among the best in the nation, with the online MBA recently being named as the number one program in the world for career services after graduation by Financial Times. Join the LeBeau test drive and experience studying as an online business student. Visit drexel.com slash LeBeau online. That's drexel.com slash L-E-B-O-W online to sign up today. Drexel.com slash L-E-B-O-W online. Reimagine the future of business with Drexel University's LeBeau College of Business. Welcome back, everyone, to this week of Women to Watch on WWDB Talk 860. Uh, Again, my name is Sue Rocco, and I'm in the studio this afternoon with Deborah Epstein-Henry, 
Uh, Deborah is an attorney, um, a consultant, a public speaker, an author, and also the founder of two companies, which uh, I definitely want to touch on. And I guess we should start with the first company that you <laughs> founded in 1999, and that's Flex Time Lawyers. So tell us about that and how it came to be. Sure. Um so I was practicing as a litigator in New York and then in Philadelphia, and I was fairly unfulfilled, despite the fact that I liked my colleagues a lot and felt a certain amount of pride in the work product um, that I was producing. I really wasn't inspired by the work. And in 1999, I sent an email out to six lawyers I knew in Philadelphia, three of whom were colleagues, three of whom I had recently met in different law firms in the city. And I said, I'm starting a brown bag lunch group for lawyers interested in work-life issues, the first event is my at my firm. Forward the invite to anyone you know who's interested. And within a couple of days, 150 people email me back in response. And I was completely overcome. I was a third-year associate. I was a fairly new transplant from New York. I knew virtually no one. And here, 150 people were emailing, emailing me about a subject that was pretty taboo. And nobody was really talking that loudly about work-life issues in 1999. So can I'm, I can I ask? Was, yes. Did that invite go out to women only or men and women? It went out to six people, and it was oh. encouraged to be forwarded. Okay. and it was mostly women who mm -hmm. received it. Just the initial six people were women, but it was not exclusive in any way, deliberately to women. Okay. Um, I ran an event in '99 on work life issues for lawyers, and I walked out of that event in that July, uh, 1999, and said, "How do I make this into my career?" And for three years, I ran events on work-life issues that ended up morphing into women's issues generally mm -hmm. in Philadelphia. And after three years of doing it pro bono on the side while practicing as a litigator, at that point, I had enough of a momentum and a following and, and um, that I was able to parlay that, that work and that developing knowledge into a consulting practice, first on work-life issues and then on women's issues in the legal profession, and then more broadly on issues about the future of the legal profession and also just women's issues generally across different professions. Mm -hmm. So it evolved, um, but it, was, um, it wasn't as if I ever had a business idea. It was more that I was really struggling with something in my own life about how to be uh, successful and on a partnership track at a law firm, but also play an integral role in my kids' lives. And once I put myself out there and said, hey, you know, this is a forum I want to start talking about and an issue I want to start talking about, the response was so overwhelming that I thought, okay, there's something really here. And mm -hmm. it was only responding to that identified need that I knew there was something that was bigger. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because so often the best ideas come from people's own experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're struggling with something in your own life, chances are other people are too. Right. It's funny. I used to run these monthly lunches and there was a topic of month and my friends who were on this listserv knew that it was completely autobiographical. And I remember um, one of the monthly topics was, does pregnancy change any everything? And uh, one of my friends on the list, you know, shot me an email and she said, mazel tov. Like, <laughs> it was like I was pregnant with my third child. They knew that that was me. So it was, I couldn't even mask it. But my whole career, as it's evolved over this almost 20 years, um, has really been autobiographical. And the issues I initially focused on were more around work-life issues when my children were young, 
now I'm much more steeped in issues around women and ambition and power and leadership. And that's because my career is at a later stage. Mm -hmm. So it's very, um, very much mirrored. The work that I've done has been, you know, in my own life. Yeah, I think that's terrific. Um, Along those lines, um, what would you say men's role needs to be in the, um, you know, the moving forward of women in leadership or support, I should say? Sure. I mean, there's a really interesting study done by Catalyst years ago called Engaging Men as Champions for Women, and I often refer to it. And what the study talks about is that there are different reasons why men have not maybe been as engaged in women's advancement historically as one would hope. And part of it is if it's personal, it's easy. So the dad with three daughters, it's a no brainer. Or my father, I gave the example earlier, he had a daughter who, you know, he was going to advocate for. So that's different. But when it's not personal, sort of what do you, how do you get men over the hump? And I think part of it is really addressing some of the real tension in the room. And I think what that tension is, is a fear of replacement. So often men don't want to advocate for that woman to get a seat on the board because they're sitting on that board. And if they advocate for the woman to get the seat, they may lose their seat. So men have to understand what's in it for them and not just them on a personal level, but also if they're employed by a company or a firm, what's in it for the company and firm. And as, as business owners or business leaders, why should they care? Mm -hmm. And I think that is a lot of getting men engaged here is they have to understand that, you know, for example, if, if you're a male leader running a company and half of your talent pool is either underperforming that they're not advancing at the same rates or they're not performing at all because they've left, then you're running an ineffective business. And so getting men to understand what's in for them on a personal level, but also from a business sense um, is going to be critical. Um, and that means also that women need to bring a lot to the table to be able to demonstrate that they're worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. And that, um, part of it also is embracing less linear careers because women historically have had less linear careers. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of components to it, but it really is critical that men get involved. And another piece of it is that we really have to make the work-life discussion gender neutral and reason neutral. And what I mean by that is you have men who are advocating for work-life opportunities just like women, but also that work-life becomes an issue beyond parenting, that it's not just about you know parenting, but also about people who want to live an integrated life. And Gen Y has done a very good job at voicing this different way of seeing the world and seeing their life. Mm-hmm. Yes, they have, and finding that balance. Um, I don't think we can talk about this topic without really talking about, you know, the diversity and why, you know, not just women, but diversity in general, why it makes for such a more exciting, innovative, creative workplace and really at the end of the day will be more profitable. And I think these discussions and statistics and studies are helping men to understand that, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And I think, again, what's critical in the diversity discussion, if you really want the support of everybody in the room, it has to be an inclusive discussion. So if at the end of the diversity discussion, if the white men, for example, feel like they're left out of the conversation, we're not going to have the same success. The answer is not to make, you know, another group feel left out. The idea is we really have to invite all of the different viewpoints into the room. And through that 
diversity of thought and contribution, the end product's going to be a better one. Yeah. Something I'm, I think about often is that there's, there's so much going on today for young women. I mean, obviously for women who are already in the midst of their careers, but when I think back to my own, you know, uh, days in college and, and right out of school, um, at least I wasn't aware of the mentorship programs and the women's networking groups and the initiatives within corporations, all of these supportive um, organizations and resources. Do you think it's making a difference? It's interesting. Um, I do think, hopefully, the end result will be a better one. But I had an interesting experience um, almost a decade ago where I thought one of the issues is that we need to start with women and girls when they're younger Mm -hmm. because as a consultant, often I'm dealing with women after they've had children, and it's like the challenges have already become very acute. But what was interesting is um, in, in 2006, I wrote a guide for women law students. And what struck me is the women law students who were involved with a focus group before the guide was finished said, you know, why are you creating this guide for us? Why don't, this is like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Why are you doing this? It's like you're anticipating that we're going to fail. And I was really struck by that. I thought, you know, I'm really heartened by the fact that you don't feel you need this support. But unfortunately, the numbers reflect that women are still not advancing and staying in their fields at the same rate. So I think we have to be careful in all the support that we provide that we don't end up in feeling have, having the, the women and the girls involved think it's a crutch because they're not as capable. And we don't want it to backfire. We want them to understand that it is supportive and, um, and we want to learn from the challenges prior to them, Mm -hmm. but we also want them not to feel handicapped by it in some way. Yeah, that's important. You know, Mm -hmm. so that's more the messaging should be, you know, you you are capable and you have something to offer and make sure that you um, speak up rather than you really need, you need our help. Right, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the book, Mm -hmm. um, Finding Bliss, and what, um, what do you hope that people will get from the book? The book is really, um, my first book focused a lot on work life and women's issues, as well as issues around the future of the legal profession. This second one is more about how the legal profession should change. And I think um, what I hope will come out of the book is really a much less linear view of how to practice law and also how to run legal employers. It's such a narrow, rigid way to think about delivering legal services. And so the real objective of this book is to not only deliver legal services better, but also have lawyers be able to do that in a way that's much more satisfying and much more um, of, of a way that actually is consistent with how we want to live our lives. Um, do you have any plans to write a third book? I really hope not. No. <laughs> it's, a br- it's a brutal process. I promise yeah. to not write a second one, um, and here I am. But right. um, I really hope not to write a third one. <laughs> um, I'm actually doing a national book tour right now, which is super fun. I love to talk about the book and right. promote it. Most authors don't. They only like the writing. I, um, in contrast, like to uh, to do the talking and, yeah. and not as much of the writing. So, well, I, you know what I was going to ask you? Yeah, the, the three things you you know you you speak, you write, you consult. 
Um, and of course, you're you're always with your hands in the companies and managing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, what's your favorite thing to do? Or is that kind um, of a tough question? No, I think my favorite thing is the public speaking. I think that um, I get enormous gratifi- gratification in seeing other people hopefully learn or get inspired by a message that I have. Um, so actually, after giving a talk, talking to people who were in the audience and being able to engage with them with question and answer during the the, um, the presentation, that to me is so gratifying. Mm-hmm. I just feel like if I can hopefully um, inspire people to think differently about their daily lives and how they work and hopefully inspire them to improve upon their daily lives, that to me is, is good work to be done. Yeah. One of the things I think is so key to just Uh, developing confidence, becoming successful is having someone who believes in you. Mm -hmm. And obviously your, your parents did and your dad did. If I were to say who believed in you, is there someone else in your life, a mentor or someone who, um, who, who did and, and it, you know, it remains with you? Sure. I was really fortunate at each pivotal time in my life to have really critical sponsors or mentors in my life, really at each Junction. I mentioned um, my uh, the the law school class. Excuse me, the um, college class that was really inspirational to me. Um, my professor from Yale, who um, inspired me there, was tremendous to me. I had a law school professor who really invested in me as a person. I had a childhood babysitter who was um, such a special person to me, and. Um, always encouraged me and she was like a, a another you know surrogate grandmother who was so special to me so um I think I've been really fortunate and and even when I was practicing law in Philadelphia before I started my own company I had a, a couple of mentors at my old law firm who really invested in me so mm-hmm. I think that is such a critical part of success in life is having people who are really your foundation. They open doors for you. They believe in you. They inspire you. Um, And to the extent that you can cultivate those relationships, it's as a junior person, it's so important. And I think often junior people don't realize how much they can bring to those relationships as well. Mm -hmm. But it it really, it it should be um, something that's mutual. And if it's not mutual, it's usually not sustaining. But there is so much as a junior person you could bring to a senior person, and it makes, in my mind, you know, all the difference in your career and in your life to be able to invest and benefit really from those relationships. Yeah, and also have someone there so when you are down and you and you make those mistakes and you fall, which we all do, you know they're they're there. You Absolutely, know, saying get back up and you can do it. Absolutely, yeah. It's interesting to me. You're, you know, you're such an advocate for women, and you have three boys. I know, and I'd love to know about them, <laughs> and and what are some of the, you know, what's the messaging you give to them? Because I think it's so critically important, um, you know, to talk about raising strong girls. The boys need to get good. Absolutely. I mean, I hear mothers of daughters all the time say, you know, I want to continue working to set this example for my daughter. And I think I, I, I feel like there's not a day that goes by where I don't try to set an example for my sons. And interestingly, my oldest son was is a freshman in college. He was home last week for spring break. And he came to the New York City launch of my book. And he's the first of my three kids who's ever seen me do public speaking. I was so excited to have him there to to be able to, you know, show him really what, um, what we do, um, and what I do. But 
Um, I think it's challenging being in a house of being an advocate for women in a house with, <laughs> I men. often say, four boys, including right. my husband, which is often fitting. Um, no offense. Right. <laughs> um, but um, part of what I try to do is make sure that they have a sensitivity that there's another voice in the room because when you're in a predominantly male house, it can be so male focused that. Um, that sensitivity is lost. So I mm. really try to bring that. Um, obviously, I focus very much on just what women do and what, you know, having them understand that um, that women can do all these great things that, that boys do um, and, and men do. And we have a very athletic-focused house, so I think it's even more concentrated. Mm-hmm. Um, but also getting them as boys to be helpers, I think, is critical because when you look at women's success, women who are married, it's really critical that their spouses are integral to running the household. So part of me trying to do my part is having my boys take out the garbage and, you know, um, shovel the snow and do all those things to be participatory people in the house, Mm -hmm. Um, good citizens of the house, I say. And in doing that, I hope that one day they'll be supportive of their, you know, female executive wives. Yeah. Do you think, um, you know, with social media and technology today, I don't think anyone can argue that that kids really are, um, I think they lack a little bit of that communication ability because they they don't have to use their voice. They just right. don't, right? They're texting and, e- and using technology. And um, what do you think some of the things that we can do and say to them to encourage more of that, you know, face-to-face communication, which is so important when they get into their own careers. Sure. I mean, one is having certain time every day that is off the grid. Um, the most obvious Unplugging. time to do it, yeah, in our house is is during mealtime. There are no cell phones that are at the table or on. Um, even if the regular phone rings during mealtime, we never pick it up unless there's, you know, if we see that there's an emergency or something like that. But, mm-hmm. but really, so having coveted time that is off the grid, I think is critical. Yeah. Um, and then just reminding your kids about certain things. I mean, so much of it is modeling it yourself, right. but when you're with your kids to be able to put down your technology and look them in the eye and give them thoughtful responses as opposed to, you know, head in the computer and just kind of not making eye contact. And it's, it's so much of it is about modeling. So for mm. them to see us, taking time that is coveted that's away from work Mm -hmm. um which increasingly is so hard because we're so tethered to Mm -hmm. our technology um but really that i think is is critical um and um just even certain old-fashioned things that don't rely on technology like i'm a stickler for thank you notes and my kids handwrite their thank you notes or they write birthday cards to their grandparents and things like that Mm -hmm. so sort of the discipline of having your kids communicate in ways other than the sort of shortcut through technology, I think can help as well. And I think those are, um, like most things, if you can ritualize some of these responsibilities, it becomes reinforced. So like a one-off is not really going to help, but, but if you on a regular basis are like, okay, you know, you're going to write this thank you note, or you're going to, um, pick up the phone and call your grandparents 
those kinds of things really embed in them that they need to communicate beyond, you know, a text. Yeah, it's important. It's that personal touch. I wonder, do they still teach cursive writing in school? <laughs> I think they do, actually. I don't even, no. let's say a spread. He might know he's a young boy. <laughs> um, if I were to ask you what your definition of a leader is, what would you say? That's a really good question. Um, the immediate thought that came to mind is actually charisma. I don't. Um, I remember years ago talk, uh, reading some article about um, presidents and how that was the the some of the most effective presidents actually were the ones who had that sort of. Uh, special charisma. It's something that's hard to define. It's it's like executive presence, which is there's some pretty interesting research around executive presence. But when you look at the qualities of executive presence, it's usually gravitas, like somebody who has the stuff. You can't sort of fake it. You have to have the substance. But behind that substance, you also have to have a presence and you sort of a magnetic personality. I think it's the combination of having the goods, having the intelligence and credibility, but also combining that with the personality. And I find leaders who don't have both components, they don't have the, you know, the critical knowledge and, and expertise and, and uh, you know, sort of critical massive information that requires you for getting credibility. If you don't have that with the personality, it's uninspired. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting. And yeah, that charisma part is what makes people want to be around you Absolutely. and pay attention. Right. And that's a lot of leadership is really creating a legacy mm-hmm. and being able to inspire others. I think, you know, people who are just leaders in and of themselves and don't have aspirations to bring others along, that's a short-term leader in my mind. Yeah. Do you have goals for later in life um, outside of the legal profession and the work that you're doing today? Professionally or? Yeah. Yeah. Um, or, I, or personally, you know, something that you think, you know, once you, because right now you don't really don't have much time to do other than <laughs> everything you're doing, raising the boys and doing the work. Is there something that you think about in the back of your mind? You know, one day when things slow down for me, I'd like to do this, whether it's sit on a board or a nonprofit or just anything. I mean, I think board work would be interesting. I, um, I actually, one of the things that is really fun for me, I mean, you asked before among the things I do, what do I like? I really like the public speaking mm-hmm. and like you, I really like meeting interesting people and interviewing them and engaging with them. So I could see wanting to move more in that direction of doing um, one-on-one interviews and things like that. I think one of the values of interviews as opposed to a panel discussion, things like that, is that you're able to engage with people and really dig in and mm-hmm. get to know them in a much more um, significant way than some sort of superficial panel. So being able to do that in different media and working with people across industry, um, it's been really interesting to me and something that I think I'll continue with and be interested in growing in. Yeah, I do love that as well. I mean, I, every week I learn something new. I say oh, it's, it's such a privilege it for really me is. to do that. Um, you know, women like you are often asked for advice. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I would imagine people come to you and, you know, look to you as a mentor. Um, and, and I do this show a lot for women who kind of, they are kind of stuck. Right. Mm-hmm. They they know that they're capable of something and, and that they should be doing it, but they can't take that first step. What advice would you give them um, to to really just get rid of those inhibitions and, and insecurities? Yeah, I mean, I think um, thinking about the worst case scenario um, helps people sometimes. They have mm-hmm. these you know thoughts like, oh, I don't want to do this or that. Um, 
if you think about the worst case scenario and then you just set a small goal for yourself and it doesn't have to be tackling the world, but just say, okay, I'm insecure about doing X, whatever it may be. And I'm going to each week say, I'm going to do something small that's getting me close to that goal. So they're not entirely putting themselves out there, but they're making incremental steps. Once they can do that, they can start celebrating the small successes and really build on it. And Mm. that gives them often the confidence to go further. So Mm -hmm. start small, but make it tangible and make it very deliberate and really sort of put a calendar to it and create some accountability, perhaps tell a friend or a colleague so that they can check in on you, but make it small, but make it significant Mm -hmm. so that it can build and, and really inspire your yeah, I think that's great advice. You know, small steps are always more, you know, attainable than, you know, trying to make some big transition, life transition or a big leap in your life. Right. Yeah. Um, that's all the time we have today. Yeah. Debbie, I'm, I'm so appreciative of your coming in. And uh, I thank you. And I want you to give your contact information for the listeners should they um, want to get in touch with you. Sure. And it's Debbie Epstein Henry, and they can go to blisslawyers.com or flextimelawyers.com and find all the information they need. And and Sue, I really want to thank you and congratulate you on all of your terrific work and say what an honor it's been to talk with you. you. And I look forward to future opportunities to work together. I do as well. I do as well. As a matter of fact, are there any events coming up that um, that you would want to mention. I, I know that you're going to be speaking um, at Harvard. Actually, yes, I'm going to be at Harvard. March. I'm going to be in Chicago this week. They're okay. On both of those websites, there's a the list of the book tour of events. But in terms of Philadelphia and apropos of today's discussion, mm-hmm. on April 17th, I'll be speaking at the Leadership Symposium of the Forum of Executive Women. And oh, I'll be great. interviewing Lisa Belkin on the subject of women and perfectionism. And we great. expect about 250 attendees and should be quite fun. Okay, great. I'm going to try to be there myself. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. Thank you so much for tuning in. And be sure to check out our website, womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Have a great week, everyone.